You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. An emotional day today at the coroner's inquest into the death of Vancouver Police Constable Nicole Chan. Chan's boyfriend testified about her frantic final hours and the heartbreaking note she left behind for her loved ones. Romina Dea reports and a warning first. The details in this story might be disturbing. The morning of January 27, 2019, VPD Constable Nicole Chan's boyfriend said he went to their Vancouver apartment to check on her. He said it was very quiet. He called out for Nicole, but no answer. There was a note on the counter. It said, please give Ollie, Nicole's dog, to my sister Jen. Please take care of him. I love him. I love you, Jen. I'm sorry. There's nothing anyone could have done. Jamie Gifford testified he noticed something tied to the bedroom door. When he opened it, he found Nicole's body. Gifford said the night before, Nicole was very frantic about the ongoing cases she was dealing with at the VPD, saying it was unfair they get to keep their jobs and she has nothing. Gifford told the jury Nicole threw something on the ground. It was something she made with a dog leash to hang herself. Later, he caught Nicole hiding a knife in the bathtub and a knife or scissors in the bed. Police were called. Chan was apprehended under the Mental Health Act and taken to hospital. But she was released a few hours later and returned home. Gifford was not there. Three months before Chan took her life, she told her WorkSafe psychologist she was frustrated and angry she was off work, while her two superiors, Sergeant McCullough and Sergeant Dave Van Patten, had not been fired. Dr. Suzanne Schibler testified Chan stated if the investigation of Sergeant Van Patten had a negative outcome for her, she might kill herself to send a message to the VPD. Reading those words and hearing those words um, certainly... Uh, I think were a very painful demonstration of just exactly how much Nicole was struggling um, and in, in her opinion how much it was affecting her in terms of her perception of what was or was not being done about her allegations. Dr. Schibler's evidence revealed Chan felt coerced into having sex with Van Patten. Chan said he was threatening to release photos of her genitals which he obtained under false pretenses from another member's phone. No criminal charges were ever laid. Van Patten was dismissed. McCullough suspended for 15 days. He later resigned. Romina Dea, Global News. Now new details in the investigation of a crash in Burnaby involving a VPD member and several off-duty Vancouver police officers who attended the scene as well. An investigation is underway to determine if the officers tried to intervene on behalf of their colleague. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, the whole incident may have been captured on camera. Last week, an off-duty senior VPD officer was involved in this collision after allegedly making an illegal left-hand turn at Royal Oak and Kingsway. Minutes later, a Burnaby RCMP traffic officer was on scene investigating. Then, several VPD members, who had been part of a women's training session nearby, arrived as well. One of them allegedly grabbed the Mountie's arm amid attempts to retrieve a cell phone, and a VPD superintendent threatened the Mountie's job. Days later, VPD Chief Palmer said this. My understanding is they were all off duty and we're doing a review of the uh, situation. Okay, how concerned are you about it? 
well, we have to get the facts and find out what happened. Based on what I've heard, not that concern. That level of concern seems to have changed as Global News has learned three senior officers, two inspectors and one superintendent have been reassigned under Section 110 of the Police Act. In a statement, the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner said... I can confirm that upon request from the Vancouver Police Department, the commissioner will be initiating a Police Act investigation in relation to this matter. This will include the appointment of an external investigating agency and discipline authority, which will be identified in due course. There are reasons to concern, and I think uh, given the allegations and the perception of perhaps a misuse of power, I think it's an important investigation, and I'm glad that the external investigators will be looking at this as well. It's a very emotional situation anytime somebody's been injured in a car accident and emotions run high. Key in the investigation could be video from the Mounties body camera. Sources say it captured the entire incident. Burnaby RCMP have declined to confirm that, saying the investigation is ongoing. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The latest search for potential graves at a former residential school site near Williams Lake could indicate the remains of dozens more Indigenous children. As Kylie Stanton reports, the findings could also reveal some horrible truths about what really happened at St. Joseph's Mission. Drumming and song marks the significance of this moment. A display of culture still very much alive despite all that's been lost. To date, 66 reflections have been recorded at the St. Joseph's Mission, which display characteristics indicative of potential human burials. The announcement on behalf of the Williams Lake First Nation adds to the 93 potential burial sites discovered a year ago in the first phase of its investigation. It is important to remember that these results are preliminary and only reflect the work conducted to date. There are 782 hectares of land identified as requiring investigation around this site. So far, only 34 hectares have been subjected to geophysical analysis. Determining where to look has been largely guided by archival and photographic research, community engagement, and a total of 28 interviews with survivors. They tell their stories, their history, their experience of the mission their familial history, uh, their genealogical connections, informing where we were going to search on the land over at the St. Joseph Mission. Among the survivors is Phyllis Webstad, the creator of Orange Shirt Day, saying in a statement, we as survivors have had to sit with this truth our entire lives, and now, finally, the rest of the world is realizing these truths too. Knowing that we still have our culture and we still have our ceremony, we still have our language, is uplifting enough to give us the strength to continue through the work that needs to be done. To date, the First Nation has identified 48 different nations that had children attend St. Joseph's Mission. The plan is to engage with each one as the investigation progresses to the next steps of excavation and exhumation. But today, the focus turns to healing. A difficult road now once again marked with validation. We see you. We have heard your stories. We believe you. And the work we are doing is done for the purpose of bringing the truth to light. Kali Stanton, Global News. And as always, we recognize coverage like this can be triggering. And there is a 24-hour crisis line available for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. The number is 1-800-721-0066.
Well, long-term relationships are the name of the game when it comes to the province's resource projects. Premier David Eby commenting today on contentious projects like Coastal Gas Link and LNG, which have been sources of disputes. Our Keith Baldry joins us now in Victoria. Uh, Keith, how does the Premier expect to keep all sides happy in these decisions? Oh boy, it's going to be a tough act uh, here to accomplish a lot of goals here. So we're talking about LNG Canada, located in Kitimat, the biggest industrial project in BC by far. And here's the issue. LNG Canada is, is contemplating going to a second phase in expansion, but that would be fueled by LNG, by, by, so not LNG, but be fueled by natural gas. That would increase uh, greenhouse gas emissions and make it unable, the BC government unable to meet its target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. One can't happen with the other. So it's put the NDP in a bit of a bind here. The final investment decision has not been made yet, but it's maybe coming. Here's a refresher look at the numbers we're talking about associated with this mammoth project. It's a $40 billion project, the biggest investment, private sector investment in Canadian history. Almost $4 billion contracts have already been signed, $3 billion of them to Indigenous businesses, 6,000 current jobs, 6,000 people currently work there. It has widespread First Nations support. So again, we asked David Eby today, the Premier, is he in favour of the expansion or is he against the ex expansion he's far from clear in his answer here it is well I think uh, for our province and for our economic future uh, ensuring that we have foreign direct investment across an array of industries including in LNG uh, is an important part of how we're going to have a strong economy going forward but another piece of that obviously is our climate targets. Uh, BC is only going to have strong and clean economic growth if we have meaningful targets around uh, climate change. There's a priority for many British Columbians. Uh, so for major project proponents, LNG Canada already was permitted by a previous government. Uh, they are going to make their final investment decision um, going forward and, uh, and we'll watch for that. But for major project proponents, we're working with them to ensure that they uh, can come within our climate commitments. Uh, and uh, LNG is no exception. So if the final investment decision is a green light, it will put the NDP government on the spot and it will have to make a much clearer decision. One potential solution that's been kicked around is getting BC Hydro to build a transmission line to Kitimat to enable electricity to f fuel that project. But that's going to take a long time and it's going to cost a lot of money. So keep an eye on this one. All right. Thanks, Keith. Several residents in a Strathcona neighborhood are displaced tonight after an explosion and fire ripped through three homes early this morning. Jennifer Palma has the story of one family that made a harrowing escape. 4.30 a.m. and fire rips through a Strathcona home under renovations. A three-alarm fire waking up the neighborhood in the 700 block of Kiefer Street. Our downstairs neighbor was running around banging on doors, you know, yelling fire for everybody to get out. And as we came down the front steps of, of the house there, you know, there was an explosion. The quick action of residents made sure 10 people were able to get out safely from two neighboring homes. Our neighbor called 911 after hearing something in the back of our neighbor's house, which no one was living in, and um, there was a swoosh, a, sound, a swoosh sound. And then it, it's, they're wood houses, so they go fast. Theodora Lamb says her partner heard a crash and yelled for them to get out. All they had time for was to grab their three children, dog jackets, and one cell phone. The downstairs resident also made it out. The fire was on us as we were exiting on the side of the house. It hadn't come through the walls, but we saw it. 
Nobody was living in the reno home and the family in the other neighboring house got out safely. But for a while, they didn't know where their cat was. Thankfully, it was found. As for the cause of the blaze, that's under investigation. You know, these are older homes and, and while many have been uh, renovated at times, they're close together and it spreads really quickly. The residents have found places to stay in the meantime. Luckily, nobody was hurt. In this moment, uh, the only thing that matters is that our family is okay. Jennifer Palma, Global News. The foul field causing a stink near Cultus Lake and the free ride is over. Why parking fees are coming to some of the most popular parks on the North Shore. Those stories next on the News Hour. Okanagan residents come to the rescue of a moose entangled in a fence. That's later on the News Hour. And scientists driving a project that could change our understanding of climate change. That's still to come. Right now, though, neighbors of a farm south of Cultus Lake are fed up with what they call a stinky situation. For months, truckloads of compost has been dumped on a field. But as Zimadagahi reports, residents say that compost looks and smells a lot like garbage. Garbage is all the way. It's up in the trees. It's easy to tell how this small but passionate community feels about the compost sitting on this Columbia Valley farm. Very questionable material. While it may look a bit like compost, what it is is uh, basically muck. Darcy Henderson had been told the owner of this land was bringing in compost to nourish the ground for future crops. But what came smelled and looked different. We know pretty well what compost smells like. This very much smelled toxic. The stench was... It would wake you up at night. You couldn't leave your windows open. Just another load of drywall being dumped. As more trucks were rolling in, more neighbors became involved in a campaign to notify the province, who found the compost did not meet the required Class A specifications. And the company running the operation was screening out plastics that on windy days were flying out of control. Aside from the foreign material content, this soil is, is great. This material needs one more fine screening and it's good to go. Despite an order from government to stop work and remove everything it has brought here, Fraser Valley Renewables continues to defend the quality of its compost. Where is this coming from? Uh, this came from a compost facility in the Lower Mainland. Yeah, I can't say specifically what one. Um, Why not? Because of contractual agreements. What we will remove is the non-organic materials. And are you confident you can remove yes. this? Yeah. Non-organic material. Yep. This as the operation takes place above the region's aquifer. This is our drinking water source, and um, it's if it's contaminated or it becomes toxic, then what? And uh, we want to protect it, and that really is what we're trying to do here. They've had more than enough time. They need to be in compliance. There's been no consequences of them uh, bringing this garbage onto the land. The landowner did not respond to phone calls. On his behalf, the company is confident it can receive a non-farm use permit to finish its job. Emadagahi, Global News. Lynn Canyon, as most of us know, is home to one of the most popular parks on the North Shore, attracting more than a million visitors per year. And the District of North Vancouver capitalized on it by bringing in a pay parking pilot project. Well, it's been a huge success. And as Krista Dow reports, it will be permanent going forward. 
The days of free parking at Lynn Canyon Park now numbered. It sucks, but I don't really mind. Obviously, you don't want to pay more for parking, but if it's a popular area and it's bringing people in, then, you know. The District of North Vancouver voted unanimously Monday to make pay parking permanent after a two-year pilot program back in 2021. The park is free. Uh, it's just whether or not you're, if you're storing a car while you're here, uh, then there's going to be a cost associated with that. Mayor Mike Little says Lynn Canyon and other parks have seen an explosion in the number of visitors. The $3 per hour fee, a way to increase traffic turnover and encourage biking or taking transit. Our daily average for coming over the Second Arrows Bridge is 131,000 daily trips. But on the weekends, it's 135,000. We also want to reward people for coming in alternate modes. So if you come in on a bike, if you come in on a bus, we're going to have more bike racks. Deep Cove, Panorama and Kate's Park likely following suit next year. They aim to also curb congestion, with many residential streets overflowing with traffic during the summer months. On the weekends, it's crazy. Like, if you go out, you don't get your spot. Our staff have worked with the adjacent uh, neighbours uh, to Lynn Canyon Park and introduced some other um, time-restricted parking and resident parking uh, only to uh, try and deal with that spillover. An annual $10 parking permit is available for residents, something Councillor Jordan Back disagreed with, arguing those who live nearby have easier access. I feel that when we are encouraging people to come by other modes, it should be everyone, uh, including residents of our own community. The pilot program has brought in about half a million dollars so far, with the money going towards improvements. So love it or hate it, come April, everyone will need to pay to play. Free is fine, but sometimes you have to support it too to kind of like help maintain the environment as well. Krista Dow, Global News. Up next, new rules for strata buildings. What the BC government just did to help you handle emergency repairs. And an historic move to preserve a precious place that's been mostly untouched for a thousand years. Traffic is in recovery mode here in Surrey, southbound Highway 99, south of the 91. There was a crash here in the left lane, but it has been pushed off to the side. Traffic is still slow from north of the 91 interchange. Renew your ICBC Auto Plan online with BC's most trusted insurance brand. Just select BCAA as your preferred broker. Learn more at bcaa.com slash car. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 99 in Surrey. The province is making a big change to how strata properties accumulate money in their contingency reserve funds, doubling it from 5% of annual operating budget to 10%. The government says the new rule will end up benefiting strata owners, but BC has yet to make any real change to skyrocketing insurance premiums. Kamal Kuramali has more. It's a move the BC government says will protect owners of strata developments. This just cleans up a regulation that was confusing and it ensures that all strata corporations are doing this. Developers and strata corporations currently have to contribute 5% of the strata's annual operating expenses to the contingency reserve funds. But starting this November, the B.C. government is increasing the legally mandatory reserve funds to 10%. Expenses that would be used for emergency repairs and maintenance work, like replacing the roof or upgrading the elevator. But 
is it enough? 10% of an annual budget is still not enough to avoid things like special levies and be able to deal with repairs as they come in the future. While addressing contingency levels may fix one issue with stratas in BC, the biggest one for almost every strata right now is the cost of insurance. On that issue, the province has yet to take meaningful action. What we're essentially doing here is ensuring that they have the money to do the regular maintenance work so there's less claims overall, which will overall reduce the cost of insurance rates. The province tabled legislation to amend the laws in 2020, but many still seeing unpredictable costs, high deductibles and annual insurance hikes, and questioning whether this move will have any effect on insurance premiums. In 2020 alone, parts of BC saw a 40% year-over-year increase. And while some of the increases have come down, strata insurance keeps rising every year. Of course, there's more measures that we need to do. We're going to continue to work with both the strata corporations and the insurance industry to find solutions. But this is something they both agreed on. So while today's measures might help address the issues of a few stratas who don't put enough away for a rainy day, the province has yet to stop the rising tide of surging strata insurance costs. Kamil Karamali, Global News. A new report is stressing the need for more culturally appropriate seniors housing in Chinatown. According to the report, there's a severe lack of suitable housing in the area right now. More than 7,000 seniors live in the area, but there are only 2,900 or so units designated for them. Among the recommendations being made is to develop new housing policy and funding and to reimagine the ways seniors can live in Chinatown in the future. There is urgency to make Chinatown a campus of care. I believe that doing aging planning well through an outcome-driven approach that puts Chinatown seniors at the heart of plans, keeping them safe, healthy and happy, will then be the catalyst for the balanced rejuvenation of the area. Community partners in Chinatown say they will be pushing to make the strategies a reality. That will include feasibility studies to look at the possibility of viable sites in and around the neighborhood for more seniors housing. Up next, another bump to the cost of borrowing. The interest rate increases we've undertaken to date are already working. The latest move by the Bank of Canada and what it means for anyone carrying too much debt. Plus, a huge chunk of pristine BC wilderness preserved forever. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. You've got two lanes in both directions, and traffic is steady out of Richmond and into Delta. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. In Global One at the Massey Tunnel. It's been one rate hike after another by the Bank of Canada with the eighth straight bump today. And that brings the rate to four and a half percent. As Aaron MacArthur tells us, it's not the news many Canadians were hoping for, of course, but there is some reason for optimism. New year, same old story. Gas, groceries, everything continues to get more expensive. The Bank of Canada just increased its policy rate for the eighth time in a row. 
It's really because we've had an 1,800% jump in interest rates since March of last year, you know, March 1st. That's where it's a killer, that they just keep on going. In March of last year, the interest rate was just above zero. The Bank of Canada started with quarter-point rate increases. But they came fast and furious through the summer and fall. And by January, the policy rate stands at 4.5%. While another hike is bad news, the governor of the Bank of Canada has indicated the pain appears to be over. We've raised rates rapidly, and now it's time to pause and assess whether monetary policy is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation back to the 2% target. Where the rate hikes have hurt the most have been for homeowners carrying variable rate mortgages. Last spring, on a mortgage of $750,000 at prime, a homeowner would have been paying $3,341 a month. Today, the same mortgage now comes with a monthly payment of $5,100 a month. Mortgage industry experts say despite the pace of the rate hikes, the landscape is vastly different from last summer. Because it hasn't really affected people's buying power, because the fixed rates have come down a little bit because of bond yields, um, the variable rate discretions have gotten bigger, so their affordability hasn't changed. Hiking rates to shrink inflation seems to have worked, but don't expect things to get any cheaper. The cost increases for everyday items has already been baked in. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Rising prices have affected nearly everyone across the country, and some say they're reaching their breaking point. As Jasmine King shows us, new data shows more than half of Canadians are struggling to keep up with inflation. Things are not looking up. The concerns are nowhere close to being alleviated. The rising cost of living has been hitting Canadians hard, and new data shows that over one-third of people are struggling to continually meet rising costs of everyday essentials. 22% of Canadians, that's more than one in five, say that they are completely out of money, saying that there is no way that they can pay any more for household expenses. Findings of a recent Ipsos poll reveals that over 50% of Canadians are struggling to stay afloat and women are most concerned about their finances. Women are nearly twice as likely as men to say that uh, there is no way they can pay more for household expenses or household necessities that they are completely tapped out. Women are concerned they won't have enough money to feed their families, and women's shelters in Kelowna say their resources are in high demand as people need the support. Whether it's this year, five years ago, or unfortunately five years in the future, we are always going to be full. Um, so that's, that's just our, that's our reality, with or without an economical crisis. Residents in Kelowna say in order to deal with the rising cost of living, they've been forced to make some changes to their spending habits. This is crazy. Going out of this world, it's like you can't afford it anymore, right? you got to back off. I wish it wasn't like that. It's not good for uh, lower level of uh, people who they are suffering. I feel bad for them. It's what it is, and you gotta, you got to eat, you got to drive, you got to work. Um, so I just sort of... What goes up must come down. Like if you're a single person, I don't know how people can even make it, to be honest. And even as like two people, we're struggling with trying to buy food. And With the price of fuel rising once again, more than 55% of Canadians were worried they wouldn't be able to afford gas. Jasmine King, Global News, Kelowna. 
Well, the premiers will finally get their long-awaited face-to-face with Justin Trudeau to talk health care. The provincial leaders have been asking for this meeting for more than a year and are unified in calling for more funding. As Richard Zussman reports, Trudeau has agreed to a meeting that says there will be no deals signed just yet. A long-awaited invitation. There's so many things we need to do and we, we will be doing them together. After years of haggling, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally willing to meet with Canada's premiers on health care and more specifically increasing the funding provinces receive. It's not just about money, although of course money is part of it. David Eby and his colleagues will now head to Ottawa February 7th. The premiers have been united in asking for no strings attached funding increases to the Canada health transfer. Right now, provinces receive $45.2 billion a year from Ottawa in health care funding. They want an additional $28 billion to be spread out per capita to each province. It's been my belief and the belief of all the premiers from the provinces and territories that if we could just get around a table together and talk it through that we could get a deal. We're not going to be signing deals on that particular moment. It'll be about uh, starting the very direct hard work of uh, the bilateral uh, arrangements that will happen with every province. With the meeting only a week away, the Prime Minister has also set conditions, telling the premiers he will only sign deals with provinces that have shared commitments with the federal government, including ensuring people have family doctors and modernizing the way that health data is shared. Each province has its own distinct health issues that we're facing, and we need to have those unique uh, agreements with Ottawa around those priorities, those areas of strain that we're feeling. While B.C. is willing to have those conversations, other provinces have been more reluctant. B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon says patients are stuck in the middle of this long-term squabbling. Well, I just really want the public to understand that the answer to our health care challenge is not just about more money. If it was just about more money, all of the health care challenges would have been taken care of by now. A 7,000-kilometre round trip to Ottawa for Premier Eby to take the much-needed first step in a new deal for health care. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Still ahead, they call it the ice cube. You can see, it does look quite cubic. A test drive for an experimental vehicle that could be heading to the most inhospitable place on Earth. Plus... It's okay, baby. A moose we'll gets loose after a roadside rescue. Join the new Global BC Arts and Culture Scene segment as we explore all the people and places that make our creative community so special. So come make the scene. The Global BC Arts and Culture Scene on Global BC and BC One. A large section of pristine wilderness in southeastern BC has been protected from development. In Kamaplu Valley is in the Selkirk Mountain Range, about 30 kilometers east of Revelstoke. The Premier and Environment Minister on hand in Victoria for an announcement by the Nature Conservatory of Canada that a 75,000 hectare conservancy has been established there. It's thanks to efforts by the federal and provincial governments, local First Nations, Interfor and Tech Resources. Our actions to preserve the Kamaplu Valley will make this one of the most significant protected areas established in the province in a decade. This is also an example of the priceless biodiversity we'll be protecting with our commitment to protect 30% of our land base by 2030. 
In Kama, Plude River Valley contains ancient trees, some up to 1,500 years old, and is home to several species at risk, including grizzly bear, mountain goats, wolverine, and mountain caribou. Looks like a beautiful place. Sure is. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon with a look at our weather forecast, and it is going to get cold, Christy. Absolutely. So I've got the numbers for you actually to show you how cold it will get. And I'll give you a comparison to the cold snap that we saw just before Christmas. That week leading up to Christmas was exceptionally cold. Quickly though, I wanted to mention we didn't see a lot of sunshine today. Yes, we got socked in and with that cloud cover, uh, we were, um, if you were able to go up into the mountains, you were able to see the sunshine, but otherwise we were socked in and we've got one more day of this before the sun makes an appearance with that cold weather. All right. So officially now, environment Canada issuing a special weather statement coastal regions and that includes from the north coast right down into the south coast we'll see temperatures from 5 to 10 degrees below seasonal inland regions potentially 10 to 20 degrees below seasonal so let's have a look at some of the numbers shall we starting off with the Kelowna area for example we could see a massive drop in temperature and this is through the weekend you'll see the transition with some of the coldest days being sort of Sunday for example uh, by comparison though to that week leading up to Christmas these were like your daytime highs. Overnight lows were dropping close to minus 30. So you can handle it, but certainly be aware it's going to get very cold. And looking at the numbers in Williams Lake, for example, dropping down. These are the overnight lows close to minus 27. The daytime highs will be, um, these were sort of like the daytime highs that you saw in the week leading up to um, Christmas. And here's a look at the overnight lows for the Fraser Valley. So we're talking about minus 7, which is what we experienced also. So I um, we can handle it, that's for sure, and it will be short-lived. Here's a look at the uh, forecast for tomorrow. So we do have precipitation in the forecast for tomorrow before that strong northerly flow starts to shift on Friday. So Friday really is that transition day, or the start of the transition day, I should say, and we'll continue to see that transition as we head into the weekend. In the meantime, this is the precipitation we're expecting for our Thursday. Temperatures staying above seasonal for inland regions, near seasonal for coastal regions before we start to see that massive train change. Now for Metro Vancouver, it's cloud and drizzle throughout the day. Just a slight chance of showers in the morning on Friday, but otherwise we are headed for sunshine over the next little while, but definitely cold. As I mentioned, though, not as cold as what we have experienced. And these guys are going to be prepared for the cold. They have built an igloo in the Castlegar area. I guess these uh, two kids built it all by themselves. And I think it's a neighbor that took the photo. So thank you to EC Hall for sharing that photo with us. We've got some good lighting in there, too. <laughs> well, yeah. Looks very cool. Now, you say, uh, Christy, that we all can handle it. But I think Squire is unconvinced. No. He... I'm oh, not yeah. certain. I'm not certain Squire is convinced that we can handle it. Well, well, <laughs> he can, he says, he can he's here. We'll get to him in a sec, mm -hmm. but first we want to show you this. Mm -hmm. They are big animals with fearsome reputations, but that didn't stop a Penticton man from jumping into action when he spotted a moose stuck in a wire fence. She's, she's very good. Kirk Barharn and his wife Angie Hilmer were driving to Penticton when they saw the moose with its legs tangled in the fence near Summerland. When Barharn approached the animal, it appeared to calm down, and he was able to free it just using his bare hands, and it wandered off. Off you go, baby. Just being dramatic. <laughs> All right, well, I, that I was hope, a fantastic rescue. I hope, the, I hope the moose eventually sends a thank you card, maybe an edible bouquet. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> we, we
was looking for some attention. Yeah. No, this whole wintry thing. Are you done yeah. with it? We did it just before Christmas. Yeah. We did it. We don't need to do it again. No, I think you're right. Once yeah. a year is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about the Canucks winning last night for uh, Rick Talkett. Also, uh, there are a lot of fans, a lot of Canuck fans, watching the NHL's race to the bottom and the Connor Bedard lottery. But does Connor Bedard himself pay attention to it? Not at all. No, I haven't haven't looked at it. I mean, you know, I still got a lot of games left to, to prove myself. Well, no, you don't need to prove yourself. You will be the number one pick this year. Tonight, Connor Bedard is the main man in the prospects game out in Langley. Awesome for those fans. Also tonight, an extreme vehicle built for an extreme climate later. In television, timing is everything, and sometimes the same is true in professional hockey. Ah, uh, yes, that is true. And the timing of the coaching switch by the Vancouver Canucks, going from Boudreaux to Rick Tockett on Sunday, was very specific because it allowed Rick Tockett to start out against Chicago, then, say, Edmonton in the game before, which would not have been good. The Blackhawks are in rebuild mode. That's what a rebuild looks like. They are fully invested in the Connor Bedard Derby. It's a team the Canucks should beat, and they did beat last night 5-2. And it was a game that had something management really wanted to see. Besides a win, the defensive play held Chicago to only 14 shots. Chicago had very few shots on goal because the Canucks had the puck most of the night. Yeah, I mean, it's a work in progress for sure. Obviously, uh, you know, when you come in and you got one practice and, you know, a couple of video sessions, it's it's a lot to go over. But I think they did a really good job of, uh, you know, translating the message to us. I like the fact that uh, we had some possession time and some really good plays, but I, I thought we, we got to get a little more net presence. I thought we, sometimes when you have a lot of puck possession, you like to, you know, like to play like the, the Russian five used to play, right? So you got to be careful you don't have guys to, playing too much in the perimeter I thought then we started getting better we got those goals in front of the net so that's what we got to really concentrate on getting some net front presence it should be mentioned the emotion and the angst of the coaching change didn't subside completely a jersey was sacrificed early in the game and Rick Tockett did get some booze sent his way when introduced well you, you don't know you don't know my middle name is it's Lou <laughs> <laughs> you know that? Is it really? Yeah, a couple of people. Yeah, they, I think they know my middle name's Lou. <laughs> so, fan base, no, listen, listen. You like, they were cheer like they were cheering the players. They were loud. Like you know, when we were scoring goals five two at the end, they were cheering. That's that's a listen. I'm not trying to suck up them or anything like that. They're a great fan base. I mean, they're passionate and uh, they cheered. They were loud as hell. And tonight, the Canucks face the Kraken, not the variant the hockey team down in Seattle. Also tonight at the Langley Event Center is the NHL-CHL prospects game for all the top players eligible for this year's NHL draft. And of course, the star attraction is North Vancouver's Connor Bedard. Now what they do is they take all these great players, they split them into two teams. And as we mentioned the other day, they also will split up the Sedin twins who are honorary coaches for both teams. Henrik is on Connor Bedard's team. And that turned Bedard this morning from possible NHL superstar back into a Canucks fan again. Yeah, that was, uh, that was really cool. I mean, you know, obviously to have a, have a conversation with him and, uh, you know, he was, he was obviously the guy, him and, him and his brother obviously were, were the guys in Vancouver for, you know, a number of years. So uh, for me being from here and being a big Canucks fan, it was, uh, it 
it's really cool to you know finally be able to meet him and and talk to him a little bit. I was kind of fanboying a little, telling him how big of a fan I was, but uh, no, it was uh, it was cool. Does it matter to you where you go? Like team or yeah, no. I mean, I think if you're if I'm able to get drafted to the NHL, I'll be I'll be pretty pretty stoked no matter where it is. So um, you know if that that opportunity you know comes to me, I'll be I'll be you know thrilled wherever that is. Can you imagine if the Canucks won the Connor Bedard Derby? All summer, everybody will be getting jacked up for the next <laughs> season. Okay, earlier today, Jay caught up with the boss of the Western Hockey League, Ron Robison, who knows that this will be Connor Bedard's last year in the Western League with the Regina Pats, but the WHL has benefited from having him in the league, and tonight there is a good number, or there are a good number, I should say, of Western League players playing in this game. It's the Canadian Hockey League NHL Top Prospects game from a sold-out Langley Event Centre. 19 Western Hockey League players will be on the ice. It would have been 20 if the Vancouver Giants forward Sam Honzik wasn't sick. Ron Robinson, you're the commissioner of the Western Hockey League. Ron, in all your decades in hockey, sorry, I don't mean to date you, have you seen anything like what we've seen with Connor Bedard? Well, actually, in the history of the Western Hockey League, there's never been a player that's had the impact that Connor's had. And, you know, number one, it comes from a great family and uh, has uh, really a grounded young man and exceptional hockey player, obviously. But uh, he's had a real strong impact uh, through BC, of course, when he came out. And uh, when, when we don't have interconference play for a number of years, it was the first time he had the opportunity to come back home and play. And all those buildings were full. So he's had a tremendous impact, not only on the international stage, but in the Western Hockey League as well. Ron, when we look at this game tonight, and as you mentioned, showcasing the top four. 40 prospects that will be drafted in the National Hockey League. To have an event like this, not only for the community, for the players, this game means a lot for the players. Nobody says no in playing in this game, even though, you know, they could risk injury. Well, the players understand how important it is for the NHL draft, and of course, it's the only event where the NHL gets an opportunity to evaluate all 40 players on one ice surface at the same time, and, and so we're going to have over 200 NHL scouts here tonight. It's going to be a fabulous opportunity for these players to demonstrate what they're all about, but uh, I'm sure they will. They're, they're accustomed to playing under the spotlight all the time, and they'll put on a great show tonight. Enjoy the evening. Of course, we mentioned the 19 Western Hockey Leaguers. There's also six BC boys that are going to be on, the, on this ice. As mentioned, Connor Bedard will be one of them. From uh, the Langley Event Center out in Langley, Jay Janower, Global Sports. And the Lions have signed uh, veteran defensive back TJ Lee to a new two-year contract. Uh, this will be his ninth season with the BC Lions. He'll be 32 years old when the season begins. There you go. Thanks very much, Squire. Up next, exploring the bottom of the world in what else? An ice cube. Jordan Armstrong is standing by with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Chris, more bad news in the forestry sector. Canfor announced late today it is permanently closing its sawmill in Chetwin. The sawmill in Houston will also shut down for what the company calls an extended period of time. Plus, more tonight on a troubling story out of Victoria about a significant rise in online sextortion targeting young boys. We'll hear from police, a social media expert, and explain how the Canadian Centre for Child Protection is using humour to get its message across to teens. These stories and more tonight on Global News at 11. Chris? All right, thanks a lot, Jordan. Well, researchers in Europe say they have built a new device to explore one of the coldest places on Earth. And they hope it'll open up new roads to fight climate change. 
Antarctica is one of the most pristine places on the planet, and climate researchers want to keep it that way. So a group of technology students in the Netherlands has put the wheels in motion with an electric rover designed to collect climate data on the continent. Currently there's nothing like our vehicle existing in Antarctica and there are no really electric vehicles in this, in this environment. Team Polar calls it the ice cube. Our vehicle, as you can see, does look quite cubic. A contraption that runs on solar power to do its research. What they use now are these very large uh, fossil fuel powered vehicles, which of course we want to transition away from towards a more electrified uh, transportation system on the continent. It's just a prototype for now being tested in snowy Norway, but designers say the rover handled the icy harsh conditions with ease. And the cold didn't seem to bother the electric batteries. We really had no idea what to expect, so for us it was also a surprise when the vehicle fantastically outperformed our expectations. Now they're working to lose the remote control so the rover can run on its own. But it'll be another few years before the ice cube is dropped into the frigid South Pole for more testing. Tina Kraus, CBS News. It looks like a cool vehicle. It does. Mm -hmm. Neat little rig, <laughs> solar powered and everything. <laughs> Uh, okay, it's going to feel like Antarctica around here maybe for a, a few of us in the next few days. What's the latest, Christy? Well, it's, I have to just give you perspective. Not as bad as what we experienced in that week leading up. Gotcha. Um, but certainly it'll be a massive drop. So here's a quick look. So uh, over the next couple of days, we're still near seasonal. It's through the weekend that we'll see a transition, a clearing trend expected on Friday. Highs of potentially only one degree on Sunday. All right. Thank you and thanks everyone for watching. Hope you have a great night. Good night all.